Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant, health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Tonight, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Ashley Fernandez. He is both an ethicist and a pediatrician at The Ohio State University School of Medicine. He's going to talk to us about healthcare rights. Is there a right to health care? And what rights do patients and physicians have? But before we do that, Andrew... Yes, I, I've got to be honest, Tom. I've been really looking forward to this interview, both because Ashley is one of my favorite people to talk to, uh, but also this topic I think is so salient as we're kind of entering another presidential election year. You can't turn on the news without people talking about health care, and the word rights gets thrown around quite a bit. And I know you like Catholic social teaching, so is the word right found anywhere in Catholic social teaching? You know, that's a great question. They the I guess from the magisterial perspective, we don't use the term rights often. And especially in Catholic social teaching, we talk about principles that lead to informed consciences and prudential decisions upon which people can disagree. But there are some things that are definitely fundamental bedrock principles that we ascribe to. Such as? Well, the, the four traditional pillars that we always kind of look back to as guideposts would be first and foremost human dignity. All humans are created in the image and likeness of God, and they have an infinite dignity because of that. That also implies equality. Uh, so that's the f- foundation. The, the other principles include the common good. We obviously should try on an individual basis and on a societal basis to do things that help everyone, and we have to be respectful of everyone. And I would like to point out, for those of you who are fans of Star Trek, like my sons and I are, that this is not the Vulcan concept of the greatest good for the greatest number. Some people think that's what the common good is. It's the greatest good possible for everybody. Right. It's not a commoditization. Right. It doesn't treat people like things. Yes, that's exactly right. And that we see that getting confused a lot in, in healthcare and everything because you know, from a societal and political perspective, people have to assign dollar amounts to certain things and allocation of resources. So they try and get calculations going to try and maximize this. But we've got to be careful not to steer into utilitarianism where people basically have worth for how useful they are. Really, everyone is created equally. And when we are thinking about the common good, it has to be the good for everyone, not just the people who are most useful, or how can we help the most people? And, and worth is a, a synonym for dignity. Everybody has inestimable worth. Every soul is worth more than the created universe apart from other people. That's how much we are worth. I, that's a great way of saying it, Tom. And, you know, the, the other two principles, solidarity and subsidiarity, work in service to the previous two. I was talking to a, a Dominican friend of mine who explained very clearly how these are not necessarily for equal principles, but they build on the foundation of human dignity, which really is the underlying principle of all four. Which makes sense. It's, it's why right to life is so primordially important for us as Catholics. Oh, 100%. You know, so we have, we have human dignity. We have the common good. Solidarity is the idea that we stand in union with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, you know, they they talk about John Donne, no man is an island, Yes, right? And so it's the idea that, yes, I am my brother's keeper. My neighbor's problems are my problems, and I am obliged to help them insofar as I'm able um, regarding health care, which we're going to talk about today, but really everything. Yes. And then the final one, which is a name that a lot of people don't understand, but the principle should make sense, is subsidiarity. It's a great, it's really a great principle, and it's one that doesn't get as much, you know, media time as the others. But it's this idea that matters should be relegated to the most proximate, competent authority, rather than some overarching, um, centralized authority. Can you give an example? You know... For, for us, a lot of times, I, I think we tend to think politically, so it, it would be analogous to a local government figuring out the best way to do things in your community rather than somebody from out of town or the federal government telling you the best way to do it because you're more proximate to the situation 
you really have more vested interest and you probably are being more proximate to the situation, you can devise the best problem solved. An example that actually impacts both of our families would be the right, this, the church does talk about this right, of parents to decide on the best way to educate their children. Oh, that's a great example. Now, most of the population of the world does not have this right like we have here. So the smallest unit to determine that right would be the family. And thanks be to God, we have that ability here in the United States and in our state of Indiana to decide how best to educate our children. But in other countries, Germany, Malta, and others, for example, parents do not have that right. So they do not recognize subsidiarity with regard to education. A large organization that has less love or concern for the individual is saying, we have the right to make this decision. You don't have it. Yeah. And I I think you run into a lot of dangerous things with that because then you don't have the opportunity who admittedly have the best interest of your child at heart better than other people. You don't have the ability to impart things that are important to you, your culture, our religious beliefs, things of that nature. You really have a right as parents that that supersede a a more centralized body. And, you know, the Catholic Church would say that all the rights we have come from our Creator. They are not made by man or just declared. They are, they are real and intrinsic at who we are as human beings. That's correct. And, and you know, it's the, the idea of rights is something that I think, and really just the, the verbiage that's used, is abused in modern society. Because if people are coming up with new rights, that's really kind of crazy. You don't have any new rights. These are rights are things that are inherent to you, and they are recognized by others. And so if someone can create a right, they can also take it away. And that was never really a right at all. That was something else. That was a privilege or some kind of benefit from belonging to a certain organization. But rights are things that are fundamental and given by God. And the, um, you know, the Catholic Church does declare that we do have some rights, you know, the, the right to uh, everything we need to flourish in life, like food, clothing, shelter, ability to um, worship in our church, to practice our faith, those would be all considered bedrock rights of the Catholic faith. And uh, tonight with uh, Ashley, uh, we're going to talk about, you know, is there a right to health care? Because there seems to be different voices on this out in the blogosphere and out in uh, the media. That's that's correct. You know, and the idea of the right to health care is something that's very controversial. There's a lot of places that can be it can be found in in teachings of popes and priests and bishops, and so this idea of a right to health care, what does that mean? What are its limits, and who's in charge of it? You know, it, is the way that it's being used. Some people say everyone has a right to unlimited provided health care from the government. Is that the same thing to say? you know, everyone has a right to care for themselves or should have a right to be able to access health care. The, the devil's in the details. I'm really excited to talk to Ashley to help sort this out. One uh, priest who's online that I respect has said that we cannot be pro-life and not believe that there is a right to health care, a right to medical care. Um, I, I think that's true. Uh, I mean, even the church in the catechism talks about the right at least to access to medical care or a basic amount of health care. But the question is, how much? Does that mean if I'm a patient and I demand to be seen by the physician of my choice, I must be seen and treated regardless of my ability to pay? That's where, as you say, the devil is in the details. That, that's exactly correct. And, and, you know, I think the corollary to that for people who who may assert that healthcare is not a right as it's spoken of currently, I don't think anybody's really saying that people should not have healthcare. You know what I mean? Yes. It's it's not that anybody wants to be excluding others from healthcare, but the idea of designating it really a, a universal and unlimited right implies obligations on other people that really cannot be met. And so it's, I, I think it's important, especially as a ground rule, to assume good intentions from people and really try and delve into the correct verbiage. So if somebody says they don't think health care is a right, it doesn't necessarily mean that they want to exclude people from health care. That's kind of nonsensical. I've never met anyone like that. But it really means does, does the right to health care extend 
completely to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, knowing that we can't afford that. So it, there's a bit of a problem here that has not seen a good solution yet. I'm sure Ashley will have a humorous take and an intellectual take on this, and they'll probably be the same thing. And before we get to the interview, I believe you have a good trivia question for us. Oh, of course. You know, finding a trivia question dealing with rights was not easy. But here we go. On December 10th, 1948, the United Nations General Assembly proclaimed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which uh, was voted on and approved by everybody there. Uh, nobody uh, disproved of it, but eight, eight different countries abstained from it. And in it, it has this line in Article 25, quote, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care. That's the end of this little quote from this larger document. My question is very simple, yes or no. Has the United States signed on to this declaration, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948? As usual, you're going to have to listen on to the end of the show to find the answer. But we'll be back after the break with our interview here on Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to our special guest interview today on Dr. Doctor. Our guest, Dr. Ashley Fernandez, is, among his long list of accomplishments, the Director of Competency for Professionalism and the Associate Director of the Center for Bioethics at The Ohio State University. He's also the and Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. He has a Master's in Philosophy, an MD from Ohio State, a PhD in Philosophy from Georgetown, where he studied under one of the great medical ethicists of our uh, time, uh, Ed Pellegrino. He is an elected member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Executive Board on Bioethics. He's received numerous teaching awards. He was the Catholic Medical Association Mentor of the Year in 2015. He's married, has two sons, lived, lives in Dublin, Ohio, and is here on the phone with us. Ashley, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Hey, thank you for having me, guys. You know, this is kind of cool, because now, for the first time, we have a brother-brother combination. We've had a brother-sister combination on two different shows. Now, uh, Ashley is an elder brother to Dr. Eustace Fernandez, who's been on the show a few times, uh, talking about vaping and about end-of-life issues. Uh, but tonight's show arose because Ashley wrote one of his many articles that was published in the Lineker Quarterly, which is the official medical moral journal of the Catholic Medical Association. In this article in February of 2019, uh, there's this provocative uh, starting point, which goes thus, quote, many people, including professional societies, argue that physicians should ignore their moral convictions in deference to the autonomy and rights of patients. Please offer a concise response to this matter. This will not be a concise show, but it will be a very good show. So... Ashley and Christopher Radich wrote an article in response. But before delving into that specific question, I think we need to cover some more foundational ground first. So, Ashley, very simply, what is a right and where does it come from? Well, that's an excellent question. And philosophers, if you have a dozen philosophers, they'll give you a dozen answers. I think this is a question that in Western philosophy and also in Eastern philosophy, we've been trying to answer for a very, very long time. The way I look at it is in light of Catholic teaching and what I've learned, we should think about a right as an objectively grounded benefit that's owed to a person by another person or by the community. That's a really simple definition, but it has some key elements to it. And we can talk more about that in a second, but quite simply, that's what a right is. Now, to answer your second question is, where does it come from? I think it's really important, a wise Dominican once told me to seldom, well, what's, what, is, what is this quote? Never deny, seldom affirm, and always distinguish. So I think it's important to think about, when you think about where rights come from, to distinguish natural rights, which are rights that a person has by virtue of being a person, and those are God-given rights, what we would be derived from God. And the, net, and the other type is political rights, and those are derived 
from natural rights or ought to be, but those are created or codified by men and women and give us our sort of civil rights. I think when you ask the question, where do rights come from? In the Catholic tradition, we say, well, of course, our rights come out of, come from God as a gift from God, our natural rights. And the way we codify rights as political rights comes from the reason which God gave us. But it all has to be in tune, in harmony. That is, in theory, political rights should coincide with natural rights, and natural rights should coincide with natural law. Give us an example of of where a political right is in harmony with a natural right. Yeah, so this is one example, is that we have a natural right, for example, to self-defense. And that is something which, if you someone attacks you or is going to kill you or harm your family, you have a natural right to defend yourself. This can be codified in laws that protect people in defense of themselves. It can be codified by laws that create a, an army, a navy, etc. And this is an example of how killing in self-defense, for example, can be justified both under the law and natural rights. And certainly so that's something... An that area where it's not in harmony would therefore be the so-called right to abortion. That's correct. And I think, I think this is one of the big... You know, it's a, con- it's a confounding of natural right and political right. It's a deliberate confounding. Men can also create political rights or create laws that are not in harmony with natural rights, but they claim to be so. And when someone says, well, I have a fundamental right to privacy, to my body, etc., apart from the fact that in the case of abortion, that's scientifically untenable, yes. we might say that that is the deliberate confounding of a political right with a natural right. It's probably important to draw that distinction in conversations with folks, because one of the things I always think of is just the the common use of the term right. Everybody's throwing it around, and many people, it seems, are talking past each other. Is it hopeless to have these conversations, or how, how should we start them? I don't think so. I think, in fact, really distinguishing precisely what a right is, and just asking it in a kind of Socratic way, if someone's arguing about a right that you don't think they have, even a, a teenager will say, I have a right to my iPhone. Okay, <laughs> They need to be, the, the teenager needs to be stopped and asked, well, what, what kind of right do you actually mean? Or we always have this, um, this issue. I mean, the other distinction that I think is important, and this has been over and over and over again, this has been reinforced by philosophical traditions in both the East and the West, is that when someone has a claim, makes a rights claim, in other words, I have a right to X, there is always a correlative duty that is imposed on another person. That's a great so right segue. And- then, So I would like to say that psychiatrist Viktor Frankl in World War II mm-hmm. survived the Holocaust mm-hmm. in Auschwitz, wrote a great book, um, about it, Man's Search for Meaning. But he said, shortly after coming out of the uh, concentration camp, that he said the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast of the U.S. needed a corresponding statue of responsibility on the West Coast. Do you agree or not, and why? Absolutely. That responsibility, you can substitute that word for duty. Duty, yes. It's a very important concept in Eastern thought, like in the Hindu tradition, for example, this idea of having a duty to something outside of yourself, not to your own ego, not to your own, simply your own autonomy. But if you think about every right as being connected to a duty, you have to ask yourself. So in in Western philosophy, we we say there are two types of rights. There are positive rights and negative rights. Let me make another distinction. Positive rights are those rights in which there is a corresponding duty on someone to actively provide you with that right. So, for example, in America, we think that children have a right to, their, to an education up until age 16. So, this is codified by saying 
there's a duty imposed in this case on the government to provide at least public education up until your age is 16. And there's an active duty to provide you with that right. There's also something called negative rights. And negative rights are those rights in which you have a right not to be interfered with in your pursuit of whatever that right is. So it's a right of non-interference, so they call it a negative right. An example of this might be the right to bear arms, for example. So if you have a right to self-defense, the government doesn't have a duty or responsibility to actively provide you with a gun. But you could argue that they have a right not to interfere with your ability to defend yourself. And I think this is a distinction. Sorry, I was just going to follow up by just saying this distinction between positive rights and negative rights is also important when you think about other concepts in bioethics, whether that's abortion or euthanasia or or um, healthcare access and things like that. So it sounds like this, uh, I read this op-ed by this Dr. Jeff Myris, and he made the statement, and I think you've answered it. He said, true human rights are discovered in moral duties. Is, does that add anything to what you've been saying, or does it just kind of uh, repeat it? No, it, it does add. I think, I think that is a really key element of the idea of rights, because rights are always connected to duties, it is in our moral life that we discover our, the, the sort of duties and responsibilities that we have. So it's not just about an individual claiming a right for themselves. So let's think this through. If you claim that you have a right to something, there's a correlative duty on someone or something to either provide you with that right or to not interfere in your pursuit of that right. And that automatically means that rights are not something that can be solely executed or experienced by an individual. They have to rely on another person. And this situates rights, not as, an, as something an individual gets to decide for on their own, but it automatically means we are dependent on someone else. And so we need to think of our rights in relation to others. In Catholic social teaching, which I believe you said you reviewed, but this is called the common good, yes, right? Yes, we did. We need, to sit, we need to situate rights in terms of solidarity with others, Yes. and in terms of uh, a, a sort of focus on the common good. So this sounds like something that's missing in today's discussions. It's like when people say that you know, as a so-called homosexual, I have a right to marry somebody of my same sex. I think what's missing in the discussion is what is the duty for somebody else and who is the somebody else? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And a lot of our controversies over the, it's a, much, a lot of our controversies over something like same-sex marriage as a political discussion involve not making that distinction or the deliberate confounding of the distinction between positive rights and negative rights. And even in this case, between natural rights and political rights, right? So, so the argument that same-sex marriage is something that is a natural right of human beings is a much harder argument to make, and it's almost never made. The Supreme Court makes a decision about same-sex marriage. It becomes the, the law of the land and therefore a political right. Political that's not the same thing as a natural right. And then secondly, when you think about, okay, well now it's enshrined as a political right. Now, is it a positive right or a negative right? Does the government or do individuals have an active duty to help promote this? Or is it a right of non-interference? And that's not clear right now in law, is it? No, it is not clear. Well, let's let's not stray from our, our primary topic tonight, and we'll head right into it. In the healthcare debate, many people talk about people having a right to healthcare. As Catholics, do we believe, with the teaching of our church, that people have a right to healthcare? And if so, what does that mean? Well, that's a tricky question. It's a very, very challenging question. Of course, Catholics of all stripes um, can look at this issue and, and, and really need to sort of pray about it, think about it. Um, What does it mean to say someone has a right 
to health care. I think if you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, they they clearly say, and I think um, this is, you know, the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2211 says, the political community, notice the political community has a duty to honor the family, to assist it, and to ensure especially in keeping with the country's institutions, the right to medical care. That statement sounds like an if statement or in keeping with the country's institutions. Yeah, that's a big caveat, right? So, so that, that is sort of a realistic, um, I don't think that's a cop-out. I think that's kind of the, that's sort of the church looking at healthcare as something that is very local and, and using sort of the principle of subsidiarity saying we're not going to prescribe a solution to this on a global level that that everybody has to have the exact same solution. So I think that's important. The way Uganda might look at healthcare, the way villages in India look at healthcare, the way the Amish in our own country look at healthcare and is a radically different or might be a radically different way than people on the East Coast of America. So but thinking about this you know, the, the phrase in the catechism is the right to medical care. I think we have to look at that again and say, okay, if there's a right, then there's a correlative duty. Now let's try to think about this. Yes. yes. Is, it a, is it a negative? So is, is it this a negative right? That is, you have a right not to be interfered with in your pursuit of medical care or in your ability to access medical care. Or is it a positive duty in which there's a responsibility on someone and the church is not specified, the government must provide this, right? The church is not prescriptive about which, about that a specific institution must provide medical care. It simply says that the political community of which we are all part, and we are all part of it as individuals, and we're all part of it as a collective. But that there, or is this, there's this positive duty that the government or an individual or a different institution has to actively provide people with medical care. So in reading through various priests online that have written, uh, one has gone so far as to say, if we are pro-life, then we must believe in a right to medical care for all people. But none of these articles where I read this, and the bishops of the U.S. have been very strong on that but I never have seen them say who has the duty to provide it. That, that seems to be a missing. Why would that be? Yeah. I think because the, the church understands that solutions are best derived at the, at the lowest level possible, that is to say, in the family, and then from there, from the community, and from there, the larger state, and so on. So this principle of subsidiarity is integrated into into this idea, or it should be integrated into this idea of a right to medical care. I will say this, at least in the United States, we seem to culturally and politically support a positive duty or positive right to provide health care for certain populations, for the poor. We have Medicaid, right? We, sure. And for, so we have Medicaid um, for the very sick or the urgently sick. So no one can ever be denied health care um, when you go to an emergency room for the dying, for the elderly, um, for the handicapped, for those that suffer from physical or sexual abuse. So there are certain vulnerable populations in which we do say there's an active duty to provide you with medical care. We would not deny you that medical care. I think that you can look at that sort of um, political arrangement that we have as a derivation of a natural right. I mean, I always think of the, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay. What's the wrong there in the two, the first two um, by, bystanders that pass by the, the person that priest was robbed and, and lying yes. on the side of the road? Yeah, right. The priest and the Levite. The, the wrong there is that this man needed care and these people were apathetic and could care less. That's not saying making a political statement about health care, but it, is, it should tell us something. There's something about that story that's telling us it's, 
it's a wrong if someone is a vulnerable person and you could do something to deny them that ability. It kind of is a, it's sort of a sin of apathy. Hey, Ashley, on that note, we're um, going to have to take a break and come back to finish this stunning interview. We'll be right back on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking Dr. Ashley Fernandez about rights. Um, we've been discussing the right to health care. And Ashley, correct me if I'm wrong, it would seem as though we do have an objective duty and at least culturally a positive right to provide health care. But there's still a lot left up to prudence and there's there's not necessarily a clear path forward. Is that correct? That's correct. And I think Catholics really need to use their God-given conscience to look at individual situations and have that ability to choose the good on their own. We need to work ourselves for, for the natural rights that God has revealed to us. And that's, I think, our duty to care for individuals comes not from a political right, but from a natural right of God, that's that the specific prescriptive solution should be left up to our own individual consciences. And just because we don't necessarily have the perfect thing to point to, that that's not a tacit endorsement of somebody else necessarily. We've we've talked on this show, for example, Medicare for all, and some of the right. the, the fears there, especially related to vision conscience. Actually, I. I know we want to talk about conscience rights. Maybe maybe this is a good opportunity to, to segue into that. What about the rights of conscience? Is that is that a positive right? If we're talking about the right of physicians to have the ability to conscientiously object, I think that imposes a positive duty on governments and institutions to actively promote and protect that right, yes. So we can no longer have a situation where it's a negative right of non-interference um, because there are cultural and social forces and things like stigma that will prevent physicians from practicing the way their conscience dictates. So I think we need to be more aggressive as Catholics and as Christians on the issue of conscience protection for physicians and other healthcare um, other healthcare workers, because we have something to give. How do we make that secular... argument in a way that those who disagree with us morally would see that there is a right to follow our conscience? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I think, first of all, it takes time. Um, people that don't believe in a right of conscience for physicians are people that probably have a lot of pre, you know, prior assumptions that they're making. So you have to, we have to be patient with people we're talking about, we're talking to. But I think one of the ways is to ask a simple way is to do what I call a thought experiment, which is ask the person you're speaking with to reflect on a time when they were forced to do something that they really didn't want to do. Okay? This is a really simple thing. And how did that make them feel? St. Pope John Paul II talked about, he, he was he, using the, the branch of philosophy called phenomenology, which is this idea that you can extract truths from experience, that the reality of the world was given to us at least in part by extracting truths from experience. So ask them to reflect on this experience. Was there ever a time when you were forced to do something you didn't want to do? And that's a terrible, if most people are honest with themselves, that's a terrible feeling. Yes. And they'll start to get it if they can put themselves in the shoes of a doctor who's now forced to, for example, kill an innocent human being, forced to kill an innocent human being, or send that person to another doctor who will do the killing for them. The same is true with assisted suicide. The same is true with, with these issues that we struggle with on conscientious objection. That's the first one. The second experience I would have them reflect on, second thought experiment, is to ask people that oppose us to think of the kind of doctor that they actually would want for themselves. Do they want a doctor that does something for you just because you want it, regardless of its moral or medical character? 
Or if they were given the choice, would they prefer a doctor that says, you know what? I can't do this because it's against my conscience. I care about you, and that's why I can't do this. And I'd be happy to still be there, still be your doctor, but I can't do this. And I think most honest people, given the choice between those two doctors, would choose the second one. They might be inconvenienced and they might not like it, but they would rather have a doctor that actually cares about them than a doctor who just does. And, and you make that point well in your article. That's the law. So my question then becomes okay, how is conscience something more? than just my preference or that little voice in my head? Well, that's, that is a really important question, and that hits the nail on the head. That question, because people aren't defining conscience as something that is rooted within the nature of the person, conscience simply becomes, as you put it, the little voice in one's head, which means it's a relative concept. I think the key for Catholics to understand about the notion of conscience is that our church holds that is intimately and irre- irrevocably tied to truth. So there is a criterion for what is right and wrong, and conscience is kind of the bridge between what we reason is true and what our experience tells us is true. And that is something that we, the truth is something we cannot change. So conscience allows us to be able to say, well, this this is what my the little voice inside my head is telling me. Now let me compare this <laughs> to what I can reason and what I can experience. What happens with with on the secular view of the human person is that because on the secularist or materialist view, we are just random collections of atoms and nothing is transcendent, that what we cognate becomes the only reality. And so therefore... When I think of a choice, when I have a choice, if you try to take that away from me, you are doing a sort of violence to my dignity and to who I am, because there's all that I have are my choices. I think this is a really important point that John Paul II makes. He says, freedom lies not in choosing, but in choosing the good. Yes. And, and that's really succinct statement. He's telling us that choice is not enough it's not to be able absolute. to say well i have all these choices and i can choose this it's not enough but conscience guides you to what the good is and that is why it's so essential okay. to preserve that right let's go to the other side of the equation in your article that seems to be at odds with it something called patient autonomy is this a right and what is autonomy so really simply i mean Autonomy in medical ethics is defined as what the patient desires for the good of their own health. And I think there's, that's not necessarily a bad concept, right? I mean, all of us, would we want autonomy when we're patients. We want to be able to express this is what we want. If a Catholic woman goes to an OB and says, I want to use the Creighton model of natural family planning, that's an expression of autonomy. And is- so in some ways, this is, you know, we tend to see it, conservatives, or I shouldn't say conservatives, but Catholics shouldn't see patient autonomy as necessarily a bad thing. But what we should be wary of is this idea of unbridled, unlimited, infallible autonomy, which is the way medical ethics and medicine is going, is the patient simply can't be wrong about the choices we make. So that's what I call the infallibility of autonomy, or the unassailability of autonomy. So a patient might be wrong, but uh, I can't really say anything to them, you know, about their choices, so I'm just going to affirm them. Isn't uh, that's a very dangerous... Go ahead. Would it be safe to say that autonomy is kind of a secular placeholder for the idea of human dignity? Absolutely. In fact, people have written about this, and your listeners could look at someone like Steven Pinker, who wrote an article called The Stupidity of Dignity. You can actually Google that and oh you can pull goodness. this up. And, that, and that's the argument he makes. This idea of dignity is nothing more than a charade, and dignity is the same thing as autonomy. And this, again, gets back to what I was mentioning before, that if you don't believe in God, if you are, have a secular viewpoint of the world, then the only reality you have is what you is what the senses can provide you 
through our material bodies. And so our neurons provide us with these thoughts that we have. We create, we sort of call these thoughts, collate these thoughts into choices. And that becomes our most sacred thing. Our choices become our most sacred thing because there's nothing else transcendent about us. This is why I think Catholics need to defend our own anthropology, our Christian anthropology, because think about this in medicine. It's a much better medicine to see a patient as a transcendent child of God than to see them as a random collection of atoms who become worm food when they die. Okay, so Ashley, we now have patient autonomy on one side, very differently looked at by Catholics and secularists. Conscience on the other side. We bring together the physician and the patient in the room. How do we cut through this Gordian knot where it seems that patient autonomy and physician conscience can be at odds? They can be at odds, but again, just when, when, when the physician and patient are in a room together, they are both fundamentally and first persons who are children of God. And as my mentor, Edmund Pellegrino, used to say, the most important part of being a physician is the covenant you have with a patient. And he used that word very specifically, not a contract. So these are two persons who come together in, to, to, to try to work out a negotiated view of the good. The patient will express their wishes as patient autonomy, and that should be listened to, and that shouldn't be shot down. But the patient must also understand that the physician is looking out for their benefit and that the physician, too, is a person with a conscience and therefore will try to do what's in the patient's wishes as long as they're truly in the patient's best wishes. And that's where the discussion happens. I think Catholic physicians are in a great position here because we do love our patients. We love them, of course, as, you know, in the, in, as children of God but we have a special care for them because of their vulnerability. I think because of that, it doesn't have to be this paternalistic one-way street. I, so, Ashley, there... Yeah, I have the, I have, I, can I say one more, one more thing? Oh, please, please. I want your listeners to know it's a very simple way to think about conscience. I have these sort of three rules for Catholic physicians. The first one is to never refuse a patient Okay, because that's not what we do as, as Catholic Christians. We will see anybody, and we will see them for any reason, and we don't discriminate based on who they are, what they've done, what they haven't done. The second rule is that you may sometimes have to refuse a practice, okay? And that can be abortion, that can be assisted suicide, it can be gender-transforming hormones, what have you. But you may have to refuse a practice, but you notice that's not the same thing as number one. Never refuse a patient sometimes refuse a practice. And the third thing is, you can always provide them with an alternative, even if that alternative is just the presence of yourself. And that, I think, is part of the duty of healthcare for the Catholic physician, is to provide your presence as a caring individual. If you think, if you frame the idea of physician conscience with those three rules in mind, it really will take the air out of the sails of people trying to paint our view as something crazy or the trampling of rights. I've heard you say these at a meeting, and I have actually followed through on them uh, myself, and I find that incredibly helpful. Never refuse um, a patient, sometimes refuse a practice, always care. We can always care for a patient. I think you've also brought up something that is very important here, that when the physician and patient are in the room, they both have a conscience, and they both have autonomy. It's not that the patient has autonomy and the physician has the conscience, but they both have both because they are each persons. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. And no government, no political entity can say that you must do whatever the patient wants. And in fact, in practice, as you both know, as physicians, it's, if, you will be a very bad physician if your job was to do whatever the patient says. Because patients sometimes ask for things that are inappropriate, for example. We're never obligated to do something that a patient asks for us that are inappropriate. And in other instances, 
physicians don't have a problem with this. Political entities don't have a problem with this. I don't have to prescribe opioids to a patient where the prescription of opioids is inappropriate. Right. But when it comes to these hot button issues, this is where how you can tell it's a political issue. Suddenly conscience becomes what they want to erase conscience altogether. So what is the fundamental error that people are making who think that we need to do whatever a patient wants, especially physicians who think that about us? I think there's two fundamental errors. The first is looking at the physician-patient relationship as a contract Uh. and not as a covenant. Again, Edmund Pellegrino, my mentor, used to say that the idea of a covenant automatically implies a, a vulnerability. You don't go into a covenant with someone who, who is equal to you in terms of technical skills, et cetera, and, and, and covenant implies trust, right? God has a covenant with Noah, but one is clearly more powerful than another in some senses. And when a person is sick and they are vulnerable, you are entering into a covenant with them to look out for their best interests because they are coming to you with the things that they don't have. But when you look at it as a contract, then a contract says, I am the consumer, you are the provider, I have asked for this, you owe me this. And again, that's, so just that misframing um, will make people think that physicians should do what they want. And what's the second and point? I think that's a real problem. The second point, I think, is a more fundamental anthropological error, which is this idea that my choices cannot be trampled on. And that's what we've talked about earlier in this segment is that this idea that freedom and dignity is fundamentally about choice, that that is all those three terms are interchangeable on the secularist view, freedom, dignity, choice. They're all the same thing. And what Catholicism provides is a much, much richer notion of what freedom is, that freedom is not about choice, but it is about choosing the good. And most people, when they think about that, that there's this something else outside of us that helps us to become the persons we are by choosing the good. That's a much richer idea of what freedom really is. And of course, we don't have time to go into the whole mechanism of how that happens, but, but it's something for your listeners to reflect on. In, in your last 30 seconds, where would you recommend patients go for more information on this? So I, I definitely think that, that listeners should go and read the position papers of the Catholic Medical Association. They should go to our website, which is www.capmed.org. I think your listeners, I really want to let them know that they should support Catholic physicians wherever they are. If you have a choice to see a Catholic physician or a secular physician, try to seek out that Catholic physician because they are going to look at you as a child of God. I would encourage your listeners to encourage your children to go into healthcare. That's what every good Indian parent does <laughs> for their kids. And, and we need you. If, you're, if your children are thinking about it at all, the more people we can get who are devoted Catholics who love the Lord and who become nurses, become doctors, would be wonderful. And the last thing I want to say is build a strong family life at home. Because even if you're not directly involved with health care, the foundation for all good health is a healthy family. Ashley Fernandez, thank you so much for being with us today and inspiring us about what rights really mean. God bless you. We'll be right back with the end of the show here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Yeah, this one was a simple yes or no. So, the December 10th, 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the United Nations General Assembly in Paris, where it says that uh, everyone has the right to medical care, among other things. Has the United States signed on to this declaration? I always love 50-50 answers. And the answer here is no. But it's not because we are some horrible country. It's because 
The declaration is not legally binding. So nobody has signed off on it. Ha, ha, ha. Trick question. <laughs> yeah, you can. You don't know where I live, so I guess you can't come after me. It's, but if you did, I would deserve it. I was going to say, I, I'd encourage everyone to read this just as a, a piece of almost historical, I don't know, just a place to reference. In 1948, how many countries and people were really on the same page about things that we are not necessarily on now. It's actually a pretty incredible document all yeah. in all. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and you could have put, you know, uh, a Pope's name on there and I would have believed it. Yeah. You so, know. and you can find it easily on the internet, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And actually one of the, the big forces behind it was our uh, the president's wife at the time who came up with it, Eleanor Roosevelt. And then after he died, she really worked uh, hard on this. But you know, people were recognized to have a right to food, shelter, uh, and other things uh, in that. Uh, but I think this was a great episode. We hope to have Ashley back for more. But we thank you, our listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, which is the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of this show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show. It helps new listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing infant mortality and premature babies with neonatologist Dr. Aaron DeWeese. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.